Good morning. Our scripture reading for today is from the book of Luke, chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 13, found in page 1017 in the Pew Bible. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had, him fi- had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Thank you, Ray. We, uh, we wanted Ray to be able to read the scripture, but we weren't sure how we'd do, so we, we wanted him to do the third week so that he could hear the same passage two weeks before he'd hear it, and then he'd know how to, how to say it well. But no, I'm kidding. Ray's actually great job, Ray. Um, <coughs> In the movie My Cousin Vinny, yeah, can I get an amen, right? In the movie My Cousin Vinny, two college-aged New Yorkers get arrested for murder in rural Alabama, and in one of the early scenes, Billy, Billy Gambini, he's in the, in the sheriff's office being interrogated. And Billy's confused because he thinks he's just being arrested because he inadvertently stole a can of tuna at a convenience store, accidentally put it in his coat, you know, and didn't realize he didn't pay for it. So he thinks he's being arrested for stealing a can of tuna, uh, and, but of course that's not what the sheriff is thinking, and the sheriff starts to get really frustrated because he's trying to, you know, pump him for details, and he's waiting to get him to, to tell him what happened. And, and finally the sheriff gets frustrated and says, okay, okay, but when did you shoot the clerk? And Billy, just stunned, says, I shot the clerk? I shot the clerk? I shot the clerk? Three times he says, I shot the clerk, as a, sort of a, a question, right? But later on in the movie, the prosecuting attorney uh, uses it, twists it, and says it was a confession. Says that three times he confessed, I shot the clerk, took his words, and completely twisted the meaning. Today we're continuing in our series uh, called Faith in the Desert. I think this is going to be the last one. It's the last one on this passage. I might throw in a kind of a spinoff. Not sure yet for next week. But we've been going through this series called Faith in the Desert. We've been looking at this passage of Jesus wandering uh, in the desert. And, And, of course, one of the main themes that has just sort of emerged from this is that you should not be surprised as a follower of Jesus, if you find yourself in the desert. We should not find ourselves surprised 
that as we've seen, the desert follows deliverance. That we have this, I think some in our culture have this perception, I come to know God, I come to know Jesus, now everything's going to be fine and dandy, everything's going to go great. But, but actually what we discover when you look at the scriptures is that historically that's just not how it has worked. That the desert follows deliverance and Jesus, uh, his, his whole wanderings in the desert as we've seen parallels the people of Israel and of course the people of Israel their moment of deliverance was the crossing of the Red Sea. They get delivered from slavery in Egypt, right? And, and then what happens? Well, they go into the desert. The desert follows deliverance. And, and so Jesus, it parallels because Jesus' his baptism is right before that. And, of course, the baptism in a broad sense sort of just parallels the, the Israelites going through the waters of the Red Sea. And so, again, it, it parallels that story. It's baptism. He's, he's conferred with uh, the divine approval of the Heavenly Father. And then, then what? Well, then he goes into the desert. And so we've seen we shouldn't be surprised if we find ourselves in the desert. And what we've discovered here is that there are temptations, though. When you're in the desert, you're going to be tempted. And we've seen that there, well, there are three temptations that emerge in this passage that Jesus, Jesus faces. And we've been looking at these. And, and the first one we looked at a couple weeks ago is really, uh, it's really the temptation to take matters into your own hands, right? You don't trust God, so you've got to take matters into your own hands. Here, Satan tempts him to, you know, turn these stones into bread, right? Because you can't count on God to provide for you, so you've got to do it. You've got to take control of your own life. That's the first temptation, is to try to take matters into your own hands when you're you're in the desert. The, The second temptation is to replace your fallen idols with a new set of idols. We saw that, that the desert really is about being stripped of your idols. Uh, it's about being stripped of those things that, that really are blessings in and of, themsen- of themselves. God, God blesses us with things that can draw us into His presence, but it's very easy for us to mistake the blessings of God for the presence of God. And so then what we're really after isn't the presence of God, we're just after the blessings. And oftentimes we, we've seen that, that God will actually intentionally take us into the desert to strip us of those idols in order to draw us near Him. But, but the, the challenge is, the challenge is as, as we saw, in, in the desert, Jesus has the Spirit. We are reminded that when you are in the desert, God is not what has left you. It might be everything else, but God hasn't left you. The Spirit is, is with Jesus in the desert but we also see that Satan is there as well. And so while God wants to use the desert to draw you to him and not just his blessings, Satan wants to take advantage of this as well. And so what you'll do is you'll replace former idols with new idols, right? So, so maybe really work became an idol for you. It used to be like you, just, you were really grateful for your job and you were grateful for how God blessed you in that. But over time, really, your job and your career success started to become more than just a blessing of God. It almost became to you like the presence of God. It became your God. It became what you were pursuing. And then maybe what happens is this, that idol gets stripped from you. You unexpectedly, unexpectedly get laid off. And so now you're in the desert. Well, what do you do? Well, the temptation is to turn to another idol. Maybe you turn to alcohol to replace that. So you go from a workaholic to an alcoholic, or you, you replace it with whatever idol Whatever it, idol it might be, that's the temptation when you're in the desert is to replace fallen idols with new idols. That's the second, second temptation. Today we're looking at this third temptation. The third temptation is to test God. 
The third temptation is to, is to test God. And what we see going on here is, well, uh, we, we've noticed the parallels here between Jesus' wanderings in the desert with other, other things in the Bible, the, the Israelites going through the desert and whatnot. But we should also be listening for other echoes here. So, so think about this. Jesus is, is in the desert, and, and, and he's being tempted by Satan. Now, can we think of any other place in the Bible where somebody gets tempted by Satan? And, of course, immediately we think of Adam and Eve, the the original temptation. And what's interesting is when you look at that temptation, we realize that that, that one of Satan's primary ways of tempting us is through deception. He deceives us. And in the story of Adam and Eve, he, he actually misquotes God. He says to Eve, he says, he says did, did, Eve, did, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve, of course, no, you kind of couldn't know. Well, no, that's not what he, he said. He didn't say that, right? So, so in, that, in that place, Satan takes God's word and actually, actually changes them, misquotes them. In this passage, actually, what's going on is, is Satan doesn't misquote God, but he twists the meaning of it. Twist the meaning of it, and here's what it is. This passage that he quotes in verse 10 from Psalm 91 is, is really supposed to be a psalm of, of sort of encouragement that, that God will protect uh, his, the, 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 the messianic person or however you, that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways, but that God's going to protect his people or protect his Messiah or protect that he's faithful, right, that, that you, you, can, you can trust that he's going to be there. And so that psalm is intended to, to build faith. But, but Satan actually twists it and uses it as a way to, to sort of get him to test God's faithfulness. A little bit like in, uh, in My Cousin Vinny where Billy says, I shot the clerk, and it's a question, but then, but then the prosecuting attorney twists it and, and turns it into a confession. Something like that's going on here, just taking it and, and twisting it. So, so not trying to, to get Jesus to, to really trust in the Heavenly Father, but to doubt him. But to doubt him. And so what we need to see here is the difference between genuine faith and testing God's faithfulness. And, and here's really what the difference is. Genuine faith believes that God can do anything, but does not expect him to do everything that you want him to do. Genuine faith believes he can do anything, but but, but doesn't expect him to realize that there might be more that you're just not seeing. Where testing God's faithfulness says, God, I'm not going to trust you unless you do this. I, I'm not going to trust you unless you meet my demands. So, so examples of this genuine faith is when, is when we say, you know, God, my job is just, I, I do not like my job. I'm not making enough money uh, to meet my family's needs. God, I just, I boldly pray that, you know, I've applied for this job. I just, I boldly pray that, that you would allow me to have that job. You have the power to do that. I absolutely believe you can give me that job, and I boldly ask that you would give it to me. Testing God's faith says, and you, might, you, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't say this with your mind, but in your heart, what you're saying is, God, if you don't give me that job, I, I'm not going to trust you. If you're not going to give me that, I, I'm not, I'm not going to trust you. God, it, it, it's believing in, in God, genuine faith is saying, God, I, I, I pray that you would heal 
my friend or my family member who is sick, I believe you have the power to heal them, and I boldly ask you to heal them. That's genuine trusting faith. Testing God's faith is when you say in your heart, God, if you don't heal them, I'm not going to trust you. So you see, testing, testing God's faith is, is it's actually sort of a, this temptation is kind of a spinoff on the first one. The first one is to try to take matters into your own hands. Uh, the second one, so it's kind of taking control of the situation. This third one is it's kind of a more nuanced one. It sounds a little more spiritual. Instead of saying, I'm going to take control of it, it's like, God, I'm going to get you to do what I want. So you're still taking control. It's just kind of veiled in some sort of spiritual language. So what we see, if we, if we pull all three of these temptations together, of course, is that at the end of the day, they're all simply temptations to lose faith in God. They're all temptations to not trust in God. And so the question is, what can we do to build our faith so that when we are in the desert, we will trust God? What can we do? And what, what do we see in Jesus? What do we see in Jesus' life and in this passage that might suggest to us a way to make sure that our faith is built such that we will trust God in the desert. And I think what clearly emerges is simply this. Jesus has built his life on the word of God. Look how Jesus responds in all three of these temptations. Verse 4, after the first temptation, Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live by bread alone. Verse 8, it is written, worship the Lord your God and Serve him only. Satan starts to pick up on this, right? So they, all right, you want to quote scripture? I'll quote scripture too, right? But Jesus is like, yeah, I think I know it a little bit better than you. Jesus answers, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So we see that, that, that really what enables Jesus to withstand temptation in the desert is that he has grounded himself in the word of God. Now, I know some of you are thinking, and this is where a kind of a, 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 something we have to kind of correct here. Some of us are thinking, well, yeah, of course he, he is God, so of course he's going to not doubt, right? But see, when we do that, we are, we are missing and downplaying the genuine humanity of Jesus. You see, what Orthodox Christianity teaches, what really emerges from the Scriptures, is that Jesus is divine, but he's also human. This is the, the great mystery. This is the great tension that of, of the Christian faith, that Jesus is both divine and he's human. And what, what, tends to, what has happened in Christianity is that there are tendencies to overemphasize one or the other. So within liberal Christianity, the emphasis is entirely on the humanity of God. He's just human. Jesus is just human. But then in some conservative circles, we can almost overemphasize the divinity. And this is where you get some of the weird, weird movies with Jesus where he's got kind of this glazed look in his eyes, you know. Just kind of like he's floating, right? Because it's just this overemphasis on the divinity of Jesus. And we need to realize that there is just this wonderful, beautiful tension that emerges from Scripture. So in this passage, we really have to see the humanity of Jesus. And so what, what is it that enables him to withstand the temptation? It's that he's grounded himself in the Word of God. We see from earlier on in his life that, that he knew the Scriptures well, that he studied the Scriptures well. When he was 12, he gets in a debate with with some of the religious leaders and, and all of this. So he's, he's grounded himself in the word of God. Now, what we need to realize here is that Jesus isn't, he's not, when he quotes scripture here, he's not do, doing some sort of 
uh, you know, Harry Potter, you know, quotes, if you just quote it right, then Satan goes away. This isn't like a magic trick. If you get the, you know, well, I, you know, I actually think the ESV, if you quote that, it's even, it even gets them to go away better. You know, it's like, it's like he's, not, he's not doing some sort of a magic trick here. One of my favorite books is the book of Psalms, and the book of Psalms really just sort of chronicles, I like to say, the, the journey of the collective soul of the people of God. And, and it's just like if it was a, a diary of, if you took all of God's people and just took a diary, you'd get the book of Psalms. And so you, you just see all the experiences of joy and celebration and, and, and misery and fear and, and doubt and depression. I mean, there's a couple of Psalms where modern psychologists look at it and they're like, you know, that, those are the classic signs of depression, right? I mean, it's just like you get the full range of human emotion and experience in the Psalms. What I love about it is that it ends with, Praise. Psalm 150 is praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So after this long journey, it all ends in praising the Lord. But you've got to kind of ask yourself, well, what enables this collective soul of the people of God to end up praising God at the end? And it's that in the beginning, this is what it says, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the seat of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. And I love this image of a tree planted by streams of water. Of water, because we need to we need to realize again that that if a person, what's a good analogy for a person in the Word of God? And if, if the Word of God is the is water, um, sometimes we think that well, it's like we're like a pipe. So you know, the water comes in one end, and then we spray it out at, at Satan on the other, right? You're, you're like Satan's over there, and you're like a hose, and and if you so you learn the Bible so that you can spout it out. Right and just spray Satan right that and this is not the image it's not it's not an imagery of take it in and then spout it out what is it it's take it in and it changes you it changes you 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 grow like a tree and it nourishes you and, and and of course the image that emerges here is this tree is just planted there it's not like you know walking away oh I'm getting thirsty I think I'll come back I mean it just sits there. With the tree, and, and, and it changes, changes and grows. Now, I think we want to ask ourselves, how does the Word of God change us? How does it transform us? In the same sense of, you know, how does water make a plant grow? And, you know, I don't know, it's something to do with hydrogen and oxygen, and it breaks it down, and something like that. I don't really know how that works, but something along those lines. How does the Word of God really change us when we, when we meditate on it? And here, here's, here's ultimately what meditating on and reflecting on the Word of God does, here's really what it does, is it reminds us of the promises of God. At the end of the day, that's really what the Bible is about, is reminding us of the promises of God. We often think of the Bible as it tells me, well, it tells me what I should do. Well, it does tell you what to do, but you've got to put that underneath the promises of God. Because of the promises of God, you can do this and you should do this. You should do this. But you've got to remember the big picture is it's because of the promises of God is the reason you should do this. And so primarily the way it builds faith in, in the desert and builds faith so that you can have faith in the desert is that it reminds you of the promises of God. And I want to highlight four promises of God 
that can help us to withstand the temptation in the desert. And here's the, here's the first one. And this is not like a, a sort of tangential promise. You see, all of these promises are absolutely at the heart of the Bible. I'm not pulling random, obscure promises. This is really what the heart of the Bible is all about. And here's the first promise I want to give you, and it's this. This is a promise that will help you in the desert. It's this. God has a plan for you that goes way beyond your life. God has a plan for you to use you for eternal things. God has a plan to use you for things that go way beyond your own life. In the book, The American Dream by Andrew Del Banco, he he, he sort of does a, uh, he sort of chronicles the history of America from a spiritual perspective, sort of looking at, you might say, the collective soul of America. And he chronicles it over from, from its inception until now. And he just wants to try to take a look at the soul of America and what has been our guiding light over the centuries. And he identifies that what he sees as three phases in what has been our guiding light. And he says that the first phase, the first guiding light, was God. And he goes back and he looks at the Puritans in, in New England, and, and he says that really Puritanism and their view really helped to craft and shape the heart of America. And, of course, at, at the heart of Puritanism was this absolute belief in the sovereignty of God, that, that it was all about God and not about you, that this, this was the, the, the heart and the soul of America was this belief in God. But then he says what he believes happened is that over time it shifted. It shifted, and what became sort of our guiding light wasn't so much God as it was our country itself. So it shifted from, from, you know, God is our guiding light to our nation is our guiding light, and even, even our nation with its religious heritage as an important part of what our nation is, but still nonetheless... It became, it became more the nation that is our guiding light. And, and, and he says, even though even during this period, um, re- religion was actually growing in America. There were more and more churches. But he was suggesting that, that actually the soul of America had, had subtly shifted. You might say a little bit like how if somebody comes into a church and, and that church preaches about God and they, and they come to know God, they come to know Jesus And they love it, and so they stay in that church, and they love that church, and they go to that church. And then over time, before you know it, they start to almost get as excited, if not more excited, about their church as they are about the God that their their church is is preaching. And so he's saying that this this subtly subtly started started to happen. We went from our guiding light is God to our guiding light is our nation. And then he says in the recent years, our guiding light has become ourselves. God, then nation, then self. What guides us is our own ambitions and our own desires. And then he highlights this interesting thing. He shows that, that Americans, he highlights this, and then other, other books have, have recently kind of observed this, is that Americans seem to be increasingly less happy They're increasingly less happy in the midst of, of abundance. Alexis de Tocqueville started to notice this when he came in the 19th century. And then recent studies 
are, are, are continuing to show this, that Americans, even though we have a lot, we're less happy. And what Andrew Del Banco goes to show, and he, and he points it back to the Puritans, that they understood is, what they understood is that actually true freedom comes when you're not thinking about yourself. That true joy comes, and, and of course, what does Jesus say? If anybody wants to save their life, they will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. That it's, it's getting beyond yourself. And, and see, see this, this, you see, when you're in the desert, I think what happens is that a lot of times when you're in the desert, the reason why we're so low is it not because we've lost our sense of purpose? We've lost our sense of purpose. That, that often is what the desert is. And so what, if you ground yourself in the promises of God, you will be grounded in the reality that God has a plan for you of eternity. It goes way beyond you. The gospel, it's interesting. You say, what is the gospel? Well, it's interesting to see what Paul says about the gospel in its most original form. This is interesting. Paul in Galatians, when he talks about the gospel, sort of its pure, the, the, the pure gospel or its, in its original form is this. This is going to kind of shock you a little bit when he says this. Galatians 3.8, he says, The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. The good news of the Bible in its most original form is all nations will be blessed through you. Through the people of God, all nations will be blessed through you. That at the heart of, of the good news in the big picture was that as God's people, we have the incredible privilege and opportunity to be the means through which blessing comes into this world. You see, and when when you're in the desert, when you're in the desert and you ground yourself in the word of God, you can come to see, hey, you know what? God has plans and purposes that go way beyond me. That's the first promise. The second promise is actually quite similar. It's related, and it's this, that God will use your desert to bring others into deliverance. We've been talking about how the desert follows deliverance. We've been talking about how the desert actually can be a part of your own deliverance. But here what I want us to see is this promise that God will use your desert to bring other into deliverance. And we find actually that this is a theme that emerges over and over again in Scripture. Probably the most famous uh, single story, sort of single small story about this is the story of Joseph. You think, of, think about Joseph, and actually, again, we can see with Joseph, the story of Joseph, how it parallels Jesus in the desert. So once again, Jesus in the desert, what happens? He gets baptized, and what happens at his baptism? Well, uh, the father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Confers his divine favor upon his son, Jesus, right? And then, well, what happens right after? He gets the divine favor of the heavenly father right into the desert. And then after the desert, he launches his ministry of healing and renewal. Now, I want us to think about the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph really gets interesting when? When Jacob gives him the coat of many colors. It gives him that robe. And, and what is he doing there? He's, he's conferring upon him his favor. He's saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased and then, of course, what, what happens as soon as, as Joseph gets the robe and gets the favor of his father, he goes right into the desert, otherwise known as he gets thrown into slavery, sold into slavery by his brothers, and then he ends up in prison uh, for two years. 
Favor right into the desert, right into the wilderness, right into imprisonment, right? And then, of course, the what happens. It is through that, through his imprisonment, that Pharaoh comes to know about him and, through make a long story short, raises him up to being second in command of Egypt and uses him what? To be a blessing to the nations. In the midst of a famine, it is Joseph that is used to make sure that people don't starve. What's going on there? All nations will be blessed through you. But how did it happen? It happened through his suffering, through his pain, through his desert. You see, God will use your desert for other people's deliverance. And that's not just the story of of Joseph. We actually see that that is part of the entire story of the people of Israel. In Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah prophesies at a time when the people of Israel were beginning to slip into the desert, you might say, because they were being more and more stripped of their idols, stripped of the things that, that, that they held dear, and shifted off into exile. And this was increasingly happened, and Isaiah saw that it was going to go even deeper and deeper and deeper. And in the midst of that, he talks about the suffering servant. The suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, it talks about this suffering servant. Now, Isaiah 53 needs to be interpreted on a number of different levels, but in a very general and even, I think, original sense, it's talking about Israel or at least a remnant of Israel that will suffer in order to renew Israel and then ultimately renew the, renew the world. You go on Isaiah 56 and it talks about the renewal of all things. And so, once again, it's almost as though this is the story of Israel, What it means to be chosen and used to bring blessing to the nations is that you're going to go into the desert and then through your desert is going to bring renewal to the the nations. Paul says something quite astounding in Romans chapter 11. He says that the casting off of Israel has led to the reconciliation of the Gentiles. That their desert leads to the reconciliation and the blessing of the nations. So I want to ask you this simple question. Is it possible that whatever desert you are in, is it possible that God might be using that to bring deliverance to others? Is it possible that you can't see it? You cannot possibly see how this could lead to deliverance for others. Joseph sitting in, an, in a prison after having been accused of sexual impropriety, he's like, how is this ever going to lead to the deliverance of others? It's possible he just couldn't see it. Here's we need to, we need to be reminded. I think Father's Day points us to this once again. And that is that as God's children, there are things we just cannot see. I've come to see that as I, as I father... Uh, and and care for my children, Uh, there are times when I will put grace in the desert. I will strip her of her idols. In other words, I'll turn the TV off. I will strip her of her idols, and she cries, and she flails. But what she doesn't understand is that I believe that's going to help her to be a blessing to the nations. You know, at least a, a blessing to maybe her future husband. I don't know. A, a blessing. She, she, doesn't, she can't see that. Is it possible that whatever you are going through as God's child, you can't see it, but he sees that he's going to use your desert for deliverance. You see, when you, 
When you ground yourself in the word of God, when you plant yourself in the scriptures, it nourishes it. It builds that faith. That's, that's a promise that can sustain you in the desert. That's the second. And two more that are much quicker. The third promise, the third promise is that ultimately deliverance follows We've been saying that the desert follows deliverance. We've been saying that the desert is a part of the deliverance. We've seen saying that the desert leads to others' deliverance, but ultimately we need to see that God will deliver you from your desert, that whatever you are in, he will bring you out of it. Joseph languishes in prison, but ultimately he is delivered. Jesus goes into the desert, but he ultimately comes out and does his ministry Jesus goes to the cross, the ultimate desert, and is raised from the dead as the first fruits of what is to come. That whatever you are in, the heart of the gospel is that you will be delivered from it. That's the third promise. When we ground ourselves in the promises of God, it can build our faith to withstand temptation. And here's the fourth one. This is the best one. When you are in the desert and your faith wavers, Jesus will remain faithful. When your faith wavers, you see, this is a promise that paradoxically can build your faith. That when you are in the desert and your faith wavers, Jesus will remain faithful. Because we're all called to be faithful, but in the end, Jesus is the only one who is. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and and in this this passage, if you get the big picture, if you see what Paul is doing throughout this whole letter, what we discover in Romans chapter 3 at the beginning here, is that he's once again making an allusion to the fact that God's people, the people of Israel, are called to be the means through which blessing comes to the nations. He doesn't doesn't expound it all that much because it's so intuitive to him, but he makes an allusion to it. People of Israel, that's what you're called to do. You're called to be a blessing to the nations. That's what you're called to do. And he makes an allusion to that here in in Romans chapter 3. Now, this is a long argument. There'd be a lot I would need to say to really parse this out, but look at this here. Romans chapter 3, page 1114. Romans 3, chapter, Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. And here it is. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. That, that word to be entrusted, it's, it's, not, it's, it's entrusted for the purpose of something that goes beyond you. You see this? It's not like, you, well, you, you have the word of God so good for you. It's you've been entrusted with it. You, you are the ones that are the means with which to go out and tell this world who God really is. But then he goes on, and what does he say? Well, in well, verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. He's saying, look, 
the, you, you're calling to be faithful to this. You just, you haven't done it. You, but, but, you know, you're not, it's not like you're worse than everybody else. You're all sinners. You're all, you all came from Adam. You all cannot be faithful to me. You just can't do it. Then Romans 3, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. saying is, you may not have been faithful, you may have lost faith, but Jesus is faithful. He is the one. You see, at the end of the day, I, I said that Isaiah 53, in one sense, it applies to the people of Israel called to, to, to give of themselves, to suffer in order to renew Israel and to renew, to renew the world. And, and, and then in a sense, that, that applies to us as the people of God. We are called to give of, give of ourselves and suffer and be used. Our desert leads to other people's deliverance. But you see, at the end of the day, there is an important sense in which Isaiah 53 can only apply to Jesus. Because in Isaiah 53, it says this really strange thing. It says that there was no sin in him. And this is what Paul's saying. Well, that's, that's not Israel. That's not you and me. That, that's Jesus. The heart of the gospel is that we are called to be the means through which blessing comes into this world. But we simply cannot do it. We will lose faith when we are in the desert. Our faith will waver, but the heart of the gospel is that when our faith wavers, Jesus remains faithful. Look into one more, one more verse. This is Mark chapter 9. I think we find here in Mark chapter 9 the essence of faith in the desert. What does faith really look like when you're in the desert? What does faith look like? What is saving faith, that faith that really is genuine faith, what does that look like when you are in the desert? And here in Mark chapter 9, we we come across a, a man who is in the desert. It, it, this is a man whose son is possessed by a, an evil spirit. And, and so this, his son just has you know, no control over himself. He's th- thrown into a, into a, they're afraid he's going to drown, you know, because he just has no control over himself. He throws himself into the, into the water. He throws himself into the fire. He's just an absolute danger and hazard to himself. And the, this man, he's, so the, the father is just in the desert, right? He's just at the breaking point. And so he comes to, he comes to the disciples and he, he asks them to help and they can't do anything about it. So he's even you know, deeper in despair. And finally, he comes to Jesus. Verse 22, from childhood, he answered, uh, or Jesus, verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, He answered, it has thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You see, that, that's, that's the sinner's prayer right there. That's the sinner's prayer when you're in the desert. I, 
I don't, e- I can't, I don't even have the faith. I, I believe. Help my un- unbelief. I can't have faith in the desert. Jesus, I need you to carry me in the desert. I, I, I need you to help me overcome my unbelief. Saving faith is not perfect faith. Saving faith is imperfect faith in the perfectly faithful one. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we come before you as beautiful people created in your image. Created to be stewards of your creation. Created to bring glory to you in everything. And yet, God, we settle for so much less and we turn from you. We turn to ourselves. We turn to our own desires and our own thoughts and agendas. And then we, we find ourselves in despair. We find ourselves unable to follow you, unable to believe in you. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have come for us. You have not left us in the desert, but you have come down from heaven. You have come down to pick us up, that your faithfulness becomes our faith. God, may we come to realize in the desert that you are all we have and all that we need. Pray this in Jesus' name.